John chapter 17, the first nine verses. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is the life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee. And they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee this morning that we might see your glory and the glory of your Father that thou hast set before us. So we pray thee, Lord, that you would open up your words unto us that we might glorify thee in the preaching of the word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, It's been a couple of weeks since we've looked at John 17, so uh, I wanted to remind us again about how there's a pattern, a wonderful pattern in the Gospel of John that follows that which was set before us in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where it talks about the uh, believers gathering together in doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. And that, of course, in the book of Acts is believers only. We're gathering to do these things. The church, uh, with its foundation, was quite pure. Ananias and Sapphira um, falling dead at the feet of the apostles and then being removed from the church. God was very zealous about the purity of his church. And indeed, he says that he will, it will be presented as a chaste virgin unto him. And so, as they mentioned, doctrine, fellowship, breaking bread of prayer, we see that exact thing take place here in the Gospel of John, that the Lord first teaches doctrine, and he has fellowship with his disciples, and they are removed from other disciples that followed him. Recall when he said that he, you had to eat his um, body and to drink his blood, that um, many of the disciples left him, except the, uh, the ones that, of course, were of the elect and that were uh, chosen by him. They remained with him because they said, Thou hast the words of eternal life, where shall we go? So then he had fellowship with them, and we saw that as we moved into the latter part of John here, that he fellowshiped with them, and that he broke bread with them, literally, um, um, in terms of the observance of what we call the Last Supper, broke bread with them, and now he's entering into prayer. And he's praying uh, praying for himself and for them, petitioning for himself and petitioning for um, his disciples as well. And he makes it very clear here that he's not praying for the world. He's praying specifically for them. And that will generally, uh, he'll expand that later in verse 20, that he's saying, I'm not praying for them alone, but for them that will believe on their words. So in a larger context, he's praying for true believers. He's praying for the elect that shall, um, all of which shall believe in him. And I, again, want us to appreciate the intimacy of the environment in which this is taking place, how these 11 disciples are alone with their Lord and Savior. 
They are alone with he in whom dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. They are alone with the Almighty. And think of it not unlike um, when Moses came to the mountain of God. That's the words used in the scriptures. You'll find that in Exodus chapter 3, about verses 2 through 5 in there. Uh, Moses came, and the ground upon which he stood was hallowed ground. And the Lord told him, the angel of the Lord appeared in the bush, and then it says, God spake to him. So in that section of Exodus, the Lord is helping us link the angel of the Lord with God himself. And God speaks to him and tells him, says, draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. The Lord here has asked his disciples to draw hither, as he indeed asks us to draw close unto him. But how did this evening begin? It began with the disciples removing their shoes and him washing their feet. So we see this wonderful parallel between the hallowed ground upon which God spoke to Moses and the hallowed ground upon which God, Christ, is speaking to his disciples here. And so I want us to appreciate um, that intimacy that we, the elect of God, enjoy with him every day when he bids us come before the throne of grace, that we would do so not for our righteousness, but for his righteousness, for what he has done on our behalf, that we might um, seek his mercy and his grace to help in time of need. So he's washed his disciples' feet. We have this wonderful intimacy here. And in this petition here, we should appreciate that it's all about glorifying the Father. Everything he asks, he subordinates himself to the request uh, of that he, a petition that he makes of his Father. And with respect to his submission here, we should appreciate also that it's a willful submission. It's a willful submission. Now, the Lord sets that before us that we should willfully submit one to another. In Ephesians 5.22, he talks about wives submitting themselves to their own husband, and we are to appreciate that that is a willful submission. It's not authoritative. It's not autocratic. The Lord has told us in the scriptures that the church is not ruled like as the Gentiles rule. In Ephesians 5.21, the verse that immediately precedes the admonition to wives submitting to their own husbands, he says to the rest of us, submitting ourselves one to another in the fear of God. So we are to willfully submit ourselves to each other, put the desires and needs of our brethren ahead of ourselves. 1 Corinthians 10.24 says that same thing. It says, let no man seek his own. In other words, seek your own will, your own desires, your own glory, but every man another's. In other words, seek that which is best for your beloved uh, brethren. Now we're going to pick this up in verse 4 because we've uh, read, we've covered the first three verses previously. Verse 4 says, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work <coughs> which thou gavest me to do. We should appreciate that everything that Christ did glorified the Father, including the, the creation. In the context of the creation, glorifying the Lord, we read about that in a very general sense in Psalm 19. Verse 1, that God is glorified by the creation. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. And so as people go out into the world and they look out and they see the glory of the creation, they see the wondrous uh, works that God has done, that glorifies the Lord. And they should see it that way. And we know that in Romans 1, 19, it speaks about how that they men might deny that and they are without excuse because it does in fact reveal God's eternal power and his Godhead. But when we see the creation, do we think of Christ? Or do we think of just God in this amorphic general sense? I would suggest that most people think of God in an amorphic general sense. 
The Christian has had additional revelation and should appreciate that Christ is the one behind that. So the very opening of the Bible says that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Um, we should understand that the beginning, the word beginning is a reference to Christ himself because Revelation 1.18, the Lord says of himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending. And so the Lord is identifying himself as the beginning. So to say that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth is another way of saying that in Christ, God created the heaven and the earth. And then when we get to the Gospel of John, it says very clearly that all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. So as we get more specific revelation, the Lord declares quite plainly that Christ, the Son of God, was the one who made all things. Colossians 1.16 for by him, meaning by Christ, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. So they're created by the Son, and yet it declares the glory of God, subordinating the glory of Christ to the glory of um, the Father. So everything in here is about Christ desiring God's glory. Now we should appreciate in a... In a actually a very particular sense, that Jesus is the brightness of God's glory. He is the expressed image of his person. Jesus is the vehicle by which God expresses who he is to the world, by the way in which he has manifested himself to the world. And he says to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the same should be is said unto all of us. If we've seen Christ, if we understand and appreciate who he is, then we understand and appreciate who God the Father is. Every characteristic and um, um, that was demonstrated by Christ comes from the Father. They are one and the same. They are united as, as one. So what Christ did, that's the Father working through him. That's a manifestation of God's righteousness, his mercy, his compassion, and his glorified. So the Father is glorified in everything that Christ did when he was on the earth here. The Father is glorified by Christ's obedience to him, by the fulfilling of all the promises of God. And so in a simplistic say, we can say that with respect to the salvation of men, that it is the will of the Father, it is the work of the Son, and it is the witness of the Spirit. Now, I'm just giving us a simplified way to help us appreciate the distinction in terms of uh, the things that were accomplished by the Godhead. All of these things overlap, and I would never endeavor to separate one from the other. But nevertheless, in a simplistic sense, we should appreciate that all of the work that the Son did, all the things that we saw him doing on this earth, all of which glorified the Father. And so the Father had promised, God had promised, that he would uh, make men in his image and his likeness. And that God, in the uh, in Genesis chapter 1, where we read that, is Elohim, it's, it's a plurality. And so this promise was from the very beginning that uh, man would be in the image and likeness of God. And then we see in Genesis 3.15 another promise that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. And so Christ fulfilled all of those promises of God. And the fulfilling, fulfilling of promises of God, of course, glorifies God. That the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent meant that God, because sin entered in because of man, it would have to be dealt with. By man, So that would require God to manifest himself in flesh. And so we read about that in Hebrews 2.14, where we read, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, meaning God, also himself likewise took part of the same, 
that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And so God manifests himself in flesh, that is Christ Jesus, fully God and fully man. He takes on the form of flesh, takes on the form of a servant, and he's obedient unto death, that through death he would destroy uh, the devil. And so God was glorified in all of the things associated with that, all of the things that, that Christ did. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8, it takes us on a step-by-step process, uh, speaking about how Christ, who is God, says, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, because he is equal with God, and in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Verse 7 says, but made himself of no reputation. That's a voluntary process. He made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. And so this is what Christ did willingly. He was made in the likeness of men. We can appreciate that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and fertilized the egg that was there. And so he was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion of a man, he, Christ, humbled himself. Again, all voluntarily. He did this. He humbled himself and became obedient, was obedient to the Father, obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so Christ glorified the Father in the obedience to everything that he did, and he glorified him by finishing and accomplishing the work that God had set for him to do. He says that in the, half of verse, the second half of verse 4, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. So in one context, it was finished before the world began because he is the Lamb of God slain from um, the foundation of the world. That's Revelation 13a. This was all set out ahead of time. He knew everything that um, he would need to accomplish, you know, before he was manifest in the flesh and he was an obedient. He was obedient every step of the way. In Psalm 40, again, another promise. Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. In other words, the whole sacrificial system was set up by God simply to be a shadow and a type of what Christ would need to accomplish. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sin offering thou hast not required. You know, the blood of bulls and goats cannot um, put away sin. Verse 7, Then said I, Christ, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me. Verse 8, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, the law is within my heart. I appreciate that verse 8. I delight to do thy will. When you're reading... Um, Philippians chapter 2 there, what we just read, think of the Lord delighting every step of the way to do his Father's will. I delight to be the offering and the sacrifice. I delight to subordinate myself. I delight to be obedient. I delight to go to the cross and die for you. I delight to do everything according to the Father's will. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had that same heart about everything that we did because we would be doing it for the Lord? When he was manifest in the flesh, everything he did was according to his father's business. As a child, when he was uh, separated from his family because they left without him, he was at the temple. And when they found him in Luke 2.49, he says, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? In other words, what did you think you would find me doing and where did you think you would find me but in my father's house, in the temple, doing my father's will. Later in John uh, chapter 4, verse 34, he says, My meat, in other words, that which satisfies me, that which fulfills me, is to do the will 
of him that sent me to do the will of my Father. He sent me and to finish his work. John 5.30, he says of myself, I can do nothing of myself as I hear. Who would he hear? He would hear from the Father, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will. He seeks not his own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. So he ever desires to do his Father's will. In John 8.28, he says unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. So he ever did his Father's work, he ever did his Father's will, and he ever spake his Father's words. It would be wonderful, as I just said, that we might do the same, that the same would be said of us, that we were always about God our Father's work and that we were ever doing his will and we were ever expressing the things, uh, his words, the things that he has taught us to say. Now, what is set before us here in terms of him requesting glory from the Father is that it's because he has finished the work of his Father. He has finished his Father's work. He declares that he has finished it. Again, another promise, which we talked about, I believe it was on um, Resurrection Sunday, was in Daniel 9, 24, where the promise is made that the Messiah would come and he would, quote, finish the transgression and make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness. And Christ, indeed, has done that very thing. He has finished, he has fulfilled the promise that was made uh, by God in Daniel chapter 9, 24. Psalm 69, 4, he says, He restored that which I took not away. It was man who separated himself from the Father because of his sin, and the Father has restored that fellowship through the Son by the work of Christ. In John 17, 4, again, he says, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And what does he say when he's on the cross and he gives up the ghost? He says, I have finished, or he says, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. So with respect to what the promise was in Genesis 1.26 about let us make man in our image after our likeness, Christ has done everything that is required that that would be a reality. He has done everything that is required so that God would then pour out the Holy Ghost and the Holy Ghost would indwell preacher, uh, people and they would be regenerated and they would be partakers of the divine nature. They would be a new creature in Christ. And the final manifestation of this will be when we put off corruption and put on incorruptibility. We'll put off these corruptible bodies in which sin dwells and put on incorruption. So Christ has done everything necessary um, to accomplish the regeneration of, of men. And again, he did it with joy. He did it with a good heart. He delighted. We read that in Psalm 40, verse 8. He delighted to do that. In Hebrews 12, 2, speaking of Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith, it says, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so with, with a joyful attitude, he delighted to do everything that his father had set before him. And again, we're admonished to do the same. In Ecclesiastes, it says that we should, whatever thy hand findeth to do, that we should do it with our might. We should do everything as though we're doing it unto uh, the Lord. And that's what the Lord did. He set his face like a flint. He went to the cross he would not be turned back. He delighted to do so. It was a joy for him to do that, that very thing. And so he was ever serving and glorifying his Father while he was on his earth. And again, so too should we. The Lord says, whether we eat or drink, whatsoever we do, we would do all 
to the glory of God. And that even when it comes to giving in the church, he says that every man should do so as he purposeth in his heart. Let him give not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Now, whether you're talking about monetarily giving or whether you're talking about giving your time and service to the Lord, always in terms of a joyful heart, a desire that God would be um, glorified in it, and we would want to be a cheerful giver to the Lord in all that we do. You know, he says to uh, put your body as a living sacrifice on the altar. This we should do with a, um, a cheerfulness of a heart, a desire to serve him. Um, when Jesus did do works on the earth, he ascribed those to his Father. And so his Father again was glorified. I've already shared with us about how it was his Father's will that he do things. And, um, and when he did things, he ascribed it to his Father. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 8, it talks about Jesus having done works. It says, when the multitude saw it, they marveled and they glorified God. And so when we do things, we don't want people to look at us. We want people to look at our Heavenly Father. That when they see our good works, you know, we're to let our light so shine before men, that when people see our good works, what would they do? Glorify us? No. Glorify our Father, which is in heaven. First Peter says something very similar. He says that when let our conversation be honest among the Gentiles. In other words, when we go out in the world and we're communicating with people and they're seeing how we live and how we... We interact with them. We want to do it such that they cannot speak any evil against us, even though they will do. It says, whereas they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. When the Lord comes, we want people to have an appreciation and an understanding. And the scripture says they will. They will glorify God, which is in heaven. They will not be glorifying us. Um, we know that in Romans 7 it says that in us dwelleth no good thing. Sin resides in the flesh. And whatever good works we might do, we should appreciate that those were works that God hath ordained that we should walk in them. That's Ephesians 2.10. So we want any, every, everything we do, if it's good, it's of the Lord. And we would uh, attribute it to him. And my desire would be that others would attribute it to God as, as well. Um, the Lord praised his father when he talked about the things that his father had done. We see that in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. And this has to do with the Lord revealing who Christ is and opening up his word to his sheep, but yet hiding them from other people. And that's unpopular in, the, in churches today that God would actually hide his word from people. But that's what it says here in Matthew eleven twenty-five through 26. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee. O Father, he's thanking the Father that God has done things the way he has done it. I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wide and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. So the Lord has hidden things from the wise people, the smart people, but he has revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. So he's um, lifting up God's... Um, wisdom uh, before the people, that it is good that God has done the things that he has done. So he's glorifying his Father in that he does that. Um, so again, by his perfect obedience, by the wonderful example in terms of his life, he glorified his Father. He was ever obedient to the law, not only in deed, but in thought. We uh, have talked about in the past how uh, in the four days preceding the uh, cross, how the scribes and Pharisees and lawyers all question him, endeavoring to trip him up with some trivial portion of the law that he never failed to say and do and think the right 
thing. Uh, when he suffered on, uh, as though he had broken the law, which he never had done, he did so because of the imputation of our sin unto him. So obedient unto death and fulfilling all of the um, requirements of the law, both in a positive sense that he kept them and in a negative sense because we failed to keep them. Um, he glorified God in terms of his service. He fed the hungry um, physically and spiritually through his teaching. He healed the sick and he raised the dead. All of those things pointing to him as the great physician, uh, the one in whom um, there is life and all of the healing and the um, things that he did were teaching about him ultimately healing his people from their sin and the effects of their sin, raising them from death to life because they were dead in trespasses and sin. And all of the things that he did, the Father was glorified. He suffered and died and he always put others before himself. We know when he's on the cross, what is he doing? He's petitioning for those that are about him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he commends um, John. He commends his mother to John. So he was always taking care of people all the way uh, until he gave up, up the ghost. And then, of course, afterwards, he intercedes as our high priest on the cross. What does he do? He says to the other, one of the thieves, and this day thou shalt be with me in, in paradise. So ever interceding for his elect, ever praying for them. He is the model servant, and God the Father is glorified that. In verse 5, he says, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And so there's a principle here that we should never glorify ourselves. We should let others praise us. The Proverbs speak of that. Proverbs 27.2 says, Let another man praise thee, and not thine own mouth, a stranger, and not thine own lips. And that is completely contrary to what I see in the world today, where people are lovers of themselves. In 2 Timothy 3, 2, it says that. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. They're going to be proud and unholy. Um, when I think of social media today and its popularity, MySpace, Facebook, and Twitter, those um, places, I can't think of a, a more broad term, those places are an epicenter of narcissism, where people are ever putting themselves in front of cameras, um, I saw that the other day. I think the reversible camera on the iPhone is probably one of the most timely um, uh, inventions of this day where people can film themselves and then put themselves on, on YouTube and promote, uh, promote themselves, glorify themselves. And so that is not what the Lord says here. He says not that he would be glorified by himself, but with the Father, it's ever about unity and subordination with the Father. And then he talks about not the glory that I had in eternity past, but the glory that I had with thee. So again, lifting up the Father, the glory of the Father, that the glory the Father presently has, and the glory that the Father had um, before Jesus was manifest in the flesh. So again, always putting uh, the Father up and, is, and setting, uh, helping us to appreciate the unity of the Father with the Son, that the Son would not be glorified in and of himself, but with the Father and with the glory that he had with the Father. And so we should appreciate that that petition was answered, deservedly so, that the Son was glorified by the Father. In Revelation 3.21, we read about how he is set down with my Father in my Father's throne. Christ is set down with his Father in his Father's throne. Again, sharing the glory with the Father. Psalm 110 spoke about that. Verse 1 says, The Lord said unto my Lord, 
sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So the Father is setting the Son in the throne with him. Psalm 21.3, we read of, uh, earlier, it's, for thou preventest him with blessings of goodness. To prevent means, that's two words, pre and event, to go ahead of. So the Lord go went ahead of him and with blessings of goodness and set us a crown of pure gold upon his head. So Christ is set in his Father's throne by his Father and a crown is placed on his head by his Father. Ephesians 1, 20, 23 speaks again of the same thing here. It says, God raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principalities and powers and might and dominion and every name that is named, and not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet. God the Father has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So God the Father has glorified the Son, placed him in the throne, placed a crown upon his head, and placed all things under his feet. And when the Lord speaks to his disciples in Matthew 28, 18, he says, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And in John, he reminds us that the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment unto his Son. And his Son would be the perfect person to commit it unto because his Son was judged because of our sins. He has suffered the wrath of the Father, the judgment of the Father because of our sins. He is eminently and perfectly qualified uh, to be the judge. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 11, it speaks about the Father glorifying him. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that day will come when every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. And again, who is glorified in that process? God the Father is glorified. But Christ is glorified in so much as knees are bowing to him and tongues are confessing that he is Lord, but ultimately the glory is to the Father. And Saul of Tarsus did that very thing in Acts chapter 9, verse 4, when the Lord appeared unto him. And how did the Lord appear unto him? He was brighter than the midday sun, brighter than the noonday sun. So much glory in him. And Saul of Tarsus, who we know as Paul, went down on the ground and called him Lord. So we see the reality of that taking place in the life of Saul of Tarsus. In, when you compare what's written in the book of Daniel and what is written in the book of Revelation, we can appreciate the Lord's language when he talks about speaking, speaking of the glory I had with thee. Christ had glory with the Father, and it's similar to the glory that he has uh, later, we read about in the book of Revelation. In the book of Daniel, chapter 7, when um, the Lord sets before, uh, Daniel gives him a vision of the four kingdoms that are to come, the four kingdoms are superseded by a fifth kingdom, and that fifth kingdom is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. But in Daniel chapter 9, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 9, it says, I beheld till the thrones, that would be the four kingdoms, were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow. Now pay attention to the description of the Ancient of Days. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. 
a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands, thousand, thousand, thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were opened. It's speaking about the great white throne of judgment because books are being opened. Then you go down to verse 13 of uh, Daniel 7, and it says, I saw in the night visions and beheld one like the Son of Man with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. So Daniel's setting before us two individuals. One is the Ancient of Days, and one is like the Son of Man. In verse 14 of Daniel, it says, And there was given him, that would be the Son of Man, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. Is that not what has been said of the Lord Jesus Christ? His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Now, the Lord Jesus, when he's speaking to the... um, Oh, the Sanhedrin, or perhaps the priests, I'm trying to think here. Who is, I think he's before the high priest in Mark chapter 14, verse 61 and 62. He's going to make reference to this vision. Uh, he's been questioned about who he is. He says, but he held his peace and answered nothing. Again, the high priest answered him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? In verse 30, 62, it says, And Jesus said, I am, and ye shall see the Son of Man, That was a reference we just read about in Daniel, the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. He's telling us that Daniel chapter 7 was speaking of him. In Revelation 14, we see that come to fruition, 14 through 15 of Revelation 14. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, the crown that we read about in Psalm 21, verse 3. And in Revelation chapter 5, again, is speaking about Christ and all of his glory here. And it says, And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousands and thousands of thousands. Just what we read in Daniel chapter 7, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power. Christ is the Lamb of God. All people are glorifying Christ and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessings. And every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I, heard a saying, heard I saying, blessing, and honor, and glory, and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen, and the four and twenty elders fell down and worshiped him that liveth forever and ever. In John 17 here, you just read one, one verse, and it just sounds so very simple here. Glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had before the world was. And so you open the scriptures and you look and you see the glory that Christ had from eternity past with the Father and the glory that he will have um, moving forward after the cross. And we see that all set before us in Scripture, um, the fruition of what is said so simply in John 17, that God brought that all to pass for his son because of his son's obedience and everything that his son had accomplished according to his will. In verses 6 through 8, I'll run through that quickly because what I'm looking for here, what I want us to appreciate here in particular, is that we in Christ have an advocate with the Father. We have an advocate with the Father. 1 John 2, 1 says that if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, 
Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ the righteous is our advocate. In verse 6, he says, They have kept thy word. In verse 7, he says, Now they have known, now they have known all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. They have known these things. Verse 8, For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them and have known. Surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. The Lord sees in us what things we do not see in ourselves. He sees his completed work in us. The Lord can see these things and yet say, as he did to the couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. We know that immediately following John chapter 17, that the, um, uh, the disciples would be scattered. Peter would deny him with an oath, evincing imperfect, imperfect understanding, imperfect keeping of the word, and imperfect obedience. And yet the Lord, our advocate, speaks of those given him of the Father, as though he were speaking of himself. For of a truth it can be said of the Lord that he has received the things of the Father, that he has believed everything, that he has had perfect obedience, he has kept the word, he has understood perfectly. And so we appreciate the imputation of his righteousness to his saint, that when the Father looks at the saints, that when the Father looks at the elect, that he sees the obedience and the righteousness of his Son. And so yet we are imperfect in all of these ways and we do yet stumble in sin, we see the Lord, our advocate, speaking of those that are given to him, of the Father, as though he were speaking of himself. And this is true, of course, only of the elect, because the elect are united with him, which he's going to, the Lord will develop in this prayer here. In Ephesians 1.4, he says, According as he hath chosen us in him, we have been chosen by God the Father in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And so our Lord speaks of his disciples as though they were without blame before him in love, that they are completely holy, and indeed they will be when he fills them with the Holy Ghost. So Christ, ever our advocate, and the person into whose image and likeness we are being conformed, we see all of his petitions here as subordinate to the glory of the Father. What he asked for, he asked that it be done to accomplish his Father's will, to accomplish his Father's work, to his Father's glory. And we should do the same. Amen. Amen.